You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, we are in Mark chapter 12, so if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. Just trucking along right through the book of Mark, and we're going to make it all of three verses this morning. Making it far. So um, here, here's the plan for this morning. Uh, we're gonna, you can basically divide up this sermon into two parts. The first part is going to be in the passage, the three verses. Uh, it is a little bit challenging to get through. It's going to require some levels of explaining. And so we're going we're gonna to try to work through the passage in part one of the sermon. And Jesus in this passage, he really only teaches us one big idea. There's one big point that he's trying to get across it's a very important point, a very necessary point for Christians, and so we're going to work through the passage in part one, and then in part two, we're going to draw out uh, several implications from the big point, point. and so, uh, so that's kind of what we're looking at, and so I'm going to read the passage again, start to finish, Mark 12, 35 through 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of God? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And David himself calls him Lord. So how is he son? And the great throng heard him gladly. I want you to imagine for a second, this is kind of a morbid way to start off a sermon, but just follow me for a second here. I want you to imagine that you are right about to pass from this life to next. And you've got all of your friends and family around you, and they're all about to listen to you tell them your last bit of parting advice, your last parting word. I'm guessing that in that setting, you're probably not going to talk about something superficial and something that doesn't matter a whole lot. You're probably not going to say in that setting, you know, how's Romo doing in the off season? What's the Cowboys looking like in the, you know, how are we going to be this year? You're probably not going to care much about those sorts of things. You're probably going to make that count, that setting count. You're probably going to talk about something that's very important to you, something that matters to you, something that when you think about the, the last thing that you say, it's going to be impactful for your hearers. And that is kind of where we are in the book of Mark. We're in the last week of Jesus's life and Jesus is about to start teaching his last public teaching before he goes on trial and before he is crucified. And so Jesus, in similar fashion, is going to say to us over the next couple of weeks starting now, these are the things that matter a whole lot. This is kind of his last parting shots to his disciples and to the crowd and to the religious rulers. And so this is where we are. We're probably Tuesday in the last week of Jesus' life. So in just a few days, he's going to be crucified and die on the cross. All that's happening very soon. And so Jesus is, is going to begin teaching. And I want you to know, the first, just in that first little phrase of the passage, that Jesus teaches now, if you remember over the past few weeks, Jesus hasn't been teaching. He's been on the defensive. He's been answering questions. He's been answering ob objections and, and very difficult, very pointed questions from religious rulers. And so if you remember a few weeks ago, Jesus' authority was challenged. The chief priests and the scribes challenged Jesus' authority earlier in Mark. And then uh, later on, they, um, they questioned him about paying taxes. If you remember that passage where the Pharisees and the Herodians come up and 
questioned Jesus about paying taxes. And then uh, after that, the Sadducees questioned Jesus about the resurrection. And then last couple of weeks, there was a scribe that questioned Jesus about the greatest commandment. And so Jesus has been answering all of these very, very difficult questions. And a lot of these questions were intended to trap Jesus and were intended to, to make Jesus, uh, to make people mad at Jesus and to make the crowd view Jesus in a way that's unfavorable. And after answering all of their objections and all of their questions, Jesus answered them in a way that was both brilliant and in a way that also exposed their hypocrisy. And so Jesus, in in response to all of these questions, as he's on the defensive, answers these questions brilliantly. And while at the same time, he also exposes their hypocrisy, which is something that Jesus loves to do. And now, here's the setting. It's a really cool setting. The crowd is quiet the religious rulers, the big guns, they're all out. They don't have anybody else left. They've brought out everybody that they know to bring out to question Jesus, and they've got nobody else in the pipeline, so they're quiet. They don't want to ask Jesus any more questions. He's answered all of their questions brilliantly while also exposing their hypocrisy. And now Jesus Christ turns to them and says, it's my turn to teach. It's my turn to teach. And I also want you to note in the first phrase, he's in the temple. And this is, just, this is more ironic than anything else. You see, the temple was built in Solomon's era. If you remember back in the Old Testament in the first few chapters of 1 Kings, and God told Solomon exactly how to build the temple. The temple was constructed in a way that was intended to point people to God. That's how the temple was built. The, perp- the reason why the temple was built, the way it was built, the outer court, the inner court, the holy of holies, was to help, people, to help point people to God. And then God installed a bunch of activities within the temple to continue to help people know God and to continue to point people to God. And in this passage, God himself in the form of Jesus Christ, the human, the son of God, walks into the temple, the very thing that's designed and intended to point people to, and nobody gets them. Isn't that ironic? The whole temple was designed to point to God, and God himself walks into the temple to teach And they totally miss him. They're hyper-focused on, now catch this, they're hyper-focused on the temple structure and the temple activity. Now, we don't have that problem, do we? You see, this this is just kind of a sidebar. But I just want to remind you that the primary reason that church exists is to point people to the person, Jesus Christ. You take Jesus Christ out of central and you get really goofy thinking. What's happened to the scribes and the religious leaders is they became the secondary activities and structures of the temple became primary things. And the person, God the person, the emphasis on pointing people to God began to be pushed to the edges and the peripheral edges. I mean, I just want to encourage you that, you know, you live in a culture, we live in a culture that's, we have issues, that we have struggles, because this is really a unique culture in America where you get the, you get the privilege of, of kind of choosing a church. You know, in the New Testament era, there was really only one church per geographic region. You kind of get the privilege of picking out a church, and, you know, you can go to a church and look at the facilities and look at how it's run and look at the activities, and if you're not careful, you can begin to exalt activities and buildings over the person of Jesus Christ. My friends, the reason why we gather on a Sunday morning is not to hear a person preach or to sing a certain style of worship, but it's to try to hear from the person Jesus Christ, to try to know God and to worship God more and more. That's the reason why we exist on Sunday morning. It's the reason why we gather and the reason why we go do home groups and the reason why activities and church exist is primarily to point people 
to the person, Jesus Christ. And so with that being said, I want to look at the passage, and in the passage we'll look at four things. Um, You can kind of look at this passage in four different ways. Who Who the scribes thought the Messiah would be, what the scribes thought the Messiah would do, who Jesus actually is, and what Jesus actually came to do. So that's what we're going to do in the passage. And let's look at the first one. Who the Messiah will be according to the scribes. Verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of God? And the scribes were a religious group in the Old Testament. They just took, a, they took the Old Testament very seriously. And... Um, they were a little bit different than other groups theologically, but one of the things they emphasized a lot was that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would be from the line of David. And so Jesus says, he asked them, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? And Jesus is not contradicting the scribes. He's not saying that they're wrong, that that interpretation is wrong. In fact, all over the place in the Old Testament, uh, there's, there's prophecies that the Messiah who's going to come, is going to be a descendant and from the line of David. And if you're like, I don't believe you, Dan, show me some. I'll just read a couple for you right now, and just so you can know. And so 2 Samuel chapter 7 says, When your days are fulfilled, God talking to David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." And then if you look a little bit later, you don't have to look here, but in Isaiah we see again another prophecy about the Messiah coming down from the line of David. In Isaiah 9, this is a really popular passage, verse 6, for to, for to us a child is born and to us a son is given and the governor shall be on his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David... And over his kingdom to establish it and to hold it up with justice and with righteousness. And from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And then lastly, in Jeremiah, there's tons of prophecies about the Messiah being from the line of David. But Jeremiah 23 verse 5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in, this, and in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. And so what the scribes did is they took that and they said that the Messiah is going to be from the line of David. And, and it's not necessarily that they're wrong. It's just that they're lacking, that Jesus is not simply from the line of David. He's a lot more than that. And they only taught that the Messiah would be from the line of David. And so that's, they, that's who they thought the Messiah would be, this descendant, this son of David that's going to at some point appear. And that's really all they taught about the Messiah. And the scribes taught that the Messiah would do what the Messiah would do. This is really interesting. I've, I talked about this a few weeks ago, but I'm guessing if you're a typical church person, you probably don't remember. So allow me to enlighten you. I'm going to enlighten you once again. And if you remember... Um, the, the scribes, they, everyone in Israel at this point thought that the Messiah would come back to reestablish Israel's political dominion in the world. And so the king, if you were an Israelite in the New Testament, there were two figures in the Old Testament that were famous. One was Moses and one was David. Those were the big two 
figures in the Old Testament. Moses, obviously, for taking God's people out of Exodus and going to battle with Pharaoh and all that fun stuff. And then David, he really was the person. He defeated Goliath, had that little bout with Saul, with Saul and then became king over Israel. And the, the kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel, flourished a lot under David's kingship. And then David died, and he passed the torch to, his, to Solomon, and then Solomon did okay. And then when Solomon died, there was a series of kings, and the whole entire kingdom, government, the, the nation of Israel began to sort of unravel after that. And so that led to a separation, an Israel, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, where Israel kind of had a little dispute within each other, and the kingdom split, and we had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and then both of those kingdoms were dominated by Assyria and Babylon, and so then Israel, the nation, went into captivity, and then Rome appeared, and this is all happening like in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and Rome appeared, and they dominated everybody. I mean, everybody was in captivity to the Roman government, and Rome, what they did in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's called the Intertestament Period, is they established a, a massive road system and they also made Greek the worldwide language and there were no world wars going on because no one wanted to fight Rome and it was a perfect time for God to send a Messiah with one message for the entire world. It was a safe, where there was traveling was safe, there was a unified language, everyone spoke and so then Jesus hits the scene and at this point in time there is no nation of Israel. There are Israelites but they're in captivity to the Roman government and so the Israelites think when the Messiah gets here He's going to reestablish the Israelite nation, and he's going to fight Rome. And so the scribes were teaching, this is who they thought the Messiah would be, from the line of David, and then they thought he's going to conquer all of our earthly enemies, all of our temporal enemies. What the scribes failed to realize is that our biggest problem is not earthly and temporal, but it's eternal and Jesus did not primarily come to solve all our, our uh, temporal earthly problems. He didn't come to give you a better life or a more stress-free life. He didn't come to give you and I an easier life. He didn't come to take care of all the people in planet earth that bother us. He came to solve our biggest problems. And yours and mine, our biggest problems are not earthly and temporal. They're eternal. And they involve salvation. Because all of us stand before a holy God as sinners. That's our biggest problem. And Jesus knows that. So he's not so concerned with the Roman government. He's concerned for your soul. For your eternity. And praise God that Jesus is not influenced by people's opinion. Because he probably would have gone to battle with Rome. But rather than going battle with Rome. He stood toe to toe with Satan, sin and death. And won against all of them. Giving us right standing with God. And so now that leads us to what Jesus actually is, who Jesus actually is, and what he will actually do. So let's look at verse 36. And David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And notice that Jesus says, David himself in the Holy Spirit, and then references an Old Testament passage. Now, this is kind of a sidebar, but this is just good for Christians to know. Jesus thought the Old Testament was both authoritative and inspired. And Jesus references, and so do a lot of other New Testament authors, the Old Testament frequently to point out things. And so in Jesus' mind, the Old Testament is authoritative and inspired. He references the Old Testament, and then he specifically says that David was writing Psalms 110 in the Holy Spirit. 
This is where we get, this is why we view the Old Testament, both the Old and New Testament, as the inspired word of God. In no way would we say that the New Testament is more superior than the Old Testament or more authoritative than the Old Testament. And we wouldn't say that the Old Testament is less authoritative or less inspired. Both are authoritative and both are inspired. And so Jesus says, David was writing this in the Holy Spirit, meaning as David was writing, God was working in his brain to actually write God's words so that David was simultaneously writing his words and probably without even realizing it, writing the actual words of God. That's what our view of scripture is. And so Jesus, I just wanted to put that in there for free because a lot of people think the Old Testament isn't authoritative and it's not inspired. But that's not a biblical way of thinking. And Jesus, even in his own mind, is thinking the, the, the Old Testament has authority and is also inspired. And so Jesus quotes Psalms 110. Psalms 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the entire New Testament. It's quoted very frequently by New Testament authors all the time. And so I want to point out some things, and uh, this is pretty interesting. So look at the first phrase in that little quote in Psalms 110. The Lord said to my Lord, there are two lords in that sentence. Now, if you're with me, now it's time to put the thinking cap on. You know what I'm saying? We're about to get fun. So if you'll notice, Lord is spelled differently or the same in this passage. It's capital L, lowercase o, lowercase r, and lowercase d. And then it's the same in the other one. And so in the Greek language, which is what the New Testament is written in, there's only one word for Lord, and that's reflected in this passage. Now, if you've got a Bible, flip over to Psalms 110, and we're going to see something a little bit different in Psalms 110. Psalms 110, verse 1, it says this, The Lord says to my Lord, If you note, this is just so cool, the first Lord in Psalms 110 is all capital letters, and the second Lord in Psalms 110 is is capital L and then all lowercase letters after that. In the Hebrew, there are two words for Lord. The first one and this one is the actual name of God. It's the word Yahweh. That's what the Israelites called, that was his actual name. And uh, so this is that capital in the Hebrew language, that all capital Lord, the Lord, they are referring to the actual name of God, the God of the Bible, says to my Lord. That's the word Adonai in Hebrew. It's a little bit different of a word. It's not the actual name of God. It's a title that is often attributed to God, but it's also attributed to kings and emperors and things like that. So it's not the name of God. It's more of a title that kings and emperors go by. And so this psalm was used to kind of reflect the relationship between God of the Bible and the king of Israel. But it later came to mean, it later came to reflect the relationship between the God of the Bible and the future Messiah, the Messiah that's going to come. Follow me? Make sense? This is a messianic prophecy. David is saying, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, future Messiah, my son who's going to come in the future is, is also going to be my Lord. That's what David is saying in Psalms 110. And so here is what Jesus says back in Mark 
chapter 12, David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Jesus is pointing out this weirdness. This isn't that hard to understand. It's weird that David, the mighty, powerful king of Israel, calls his future son his Lord, his Messiah. You know, right now I have a year and a half year old son, and um, he's reached the point where this is a really fun stage. The year and a half year old, to me, this has been, been, been a really fun point in our parenting journey because his, his personality is starting to come out, and he's starting to, you know, to talk a little bit and interact, and he can walk around, and he can do, and he, you know, he's straight boy. He's, he just, he plays in the dirt. He, he picked up a turtle the other day. I just loved it. I mean, he picked up a turtle. Mom was freaking out, and I was I was a proud father when he picked up the turtle. And so Owen, the other night, we were, um, I was out uh, watering my shrubs, and he was, he, I was squirting him consistently because he loves water. And so, and he was also taking mulch out of my flower bed and eating it. So I was like trying to simultaneously water my bushes and keep my son from digesting large quantities of cedar mulch, which I didn't think would be good for his digestive system. And so um, I would take the mulch away, and he would have a just straight-up meltdown. You know that stage where this is what I've called the crazy, unrealistic meltdowns for really no reason at all stage. That's the stage that we're in right now. Some of you have teenagers, and you're still in that stage. That's a problem, you know. Hopefully, Owen will grow out of it. But he, you know, I'd take mulch away and put it back, and he would just, I mean, it's like face-to-the-ground, total meltdown stage. And then I would squirt him with water, and he'd be happy again. It's just unbelievable. I mean... The range of emotions just go so quick. It's so fun. And, but what we, but we know about little kids is they really do operate like they are the center of the universe, where if you take something away from them, you know, they just have complete and total meltdowns. I mean, if you take away, and then if you give them what they want, it's like the total, I mean, just happy. And so they just have this sort of, I am the center of the universe sort of thinking. And we're, we accept that as parents. If you're a year and a half year old, you don't know any better. You know, you just kind of, that's just kind of the way you live life. And hopefully, by the grace of God, you grow out of that eventually. Um, but so it's not overly weird that they think that. But what would be weird is if you came over to my house and Trisha and I referred to Owen as Lord Owen. That would be strange. <laughs> if we actually treated him with that. Now, his grandparents do this. They treat him with, you know... But I, wouldn't, I don't call Owen Lord Owen. He's not Lord to me. You know, he's son to me. And so uh, this, is, this, is the, this, this is a simple illustration to point out the exact weirdness that Jesus is pointing out. That David says, my son, my future descendant, is also my Lord. And that's strange. But it's really not so strange. Because while Jesus Christ is a descendant of David, he is much more than that. He's the actual, literal son of God. And David knows this and senses that this, he probably doesn't know it all the way like we know it. But he knows it enough to say, this is my Lord coming down. So here's the point. Here it is. The big point that Jesus starts off with in this last teaching is that he is the actual, literal son of God. He is Lord. This is central to your life. It's central to the gospel. Jesus looks out and says, here's what I want to open up with. I want to open up by saying this to everybody. Everybody needs to know that I'm not just limited to a descendant of David. I am the actual son of God, the transcendent son of God 
who was eternally present with God before time existed and will be forevermore with God. I am the Messiah that you've been waiting for. And I'm more than just a a descendant of David who's going to wage war against Rome. I'm a lot bigger than that. And Jesus' plan for us and Jesus' plan for what he's going to accomplish is much more than just going toe-to-toe with Rome He's going to stand toe-to-toe with Satan's sin and death. And even in this psalm, we see that until I put your enemies under your feet, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And so Jesus' pathway of lordship is not a pathway of fighting, but it's a pathway marked by dying, by suffering and dying. And when Jesus was hanging on the cross in just a few days from this scene, he's going to take upon himself the wrath of God that's supposed to go to you and I for sin. And he's going to, in turn, give us his righteousness, his right standing with God. So that now you can have right standing with God. And he's going to rise up from the dead. And the Holy Spirit's going to come into Jesus' dead body and re-energize him and breathe new life into Jesus. And Jesus is going to come up out of the grave. And and he's going to send a signal to Satan, sin, and death that now I am King of kings and Lord of lords and not even Satan's sin and even death itself is more powerful than Jesus Christ, but Jesus will ascend up into heaven and he will sit down at God's right hand and God will in that moment take all things and all people and place them underneath the feet of Jesus Christ, signifying to everybody who's ever walked planet earth, Jesus is Lord in the realest sense, in the most real way, Jesus is Lord and to whom all power and glory and dominion belong. And that's what Jesus came to do. He was the Son of God who came to die on the cross and give you right standing with God so that you and I can know God. You and I can have eternal life with God. And so with that being said, that's the big idea. And I want to I end this morning by drawing out some implications of Jesus' lordship. And I'll just say right off the bat, there is no way that I'll be able to draw out every implication for Jesus' lordship. Uh, it's innumerable. There's, it, there's literally no area in your life that is not affected by Jesus' lordship. You start thinking about Jesus Christ as the actual Lord there literally is no end to the implications for your life. And so this could be a great conversation in home group, and so I want to kind of get the conversation started. Here's the question. Jesus is Lord, so what, now what? What are we going to do with that, and what does that mean for us today? What I want to do is just give you a framework for thinking about Jesus Christ as Lord. And so here are at least five things, five ways in which Jesus' lordship really do meet us right now where we are in this day and age. And so the first being a salvation implication. If Jesus is actually who he says he was, and he is Lord, perfect God, that means that everything Jesus said is 100% truth. There's no error to Jesus. There's nothing that he said that was wrong. And in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through Jesus, except through him. And there is only one way to know God. And it is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And there's non-Christians who say that that feels very exclusive for Jesus to say that. Because non-Christians and a lot of people think 
all, there's many roads to get to God. You've heard this. Many roads to get to God. His way, your way, my way, all could be different. But if it's good and if you're sincere about it, then that's okay and it'll get to God. You'll get to God. But Jesus says, I am the only way to get to God. And my friends, that is not an exclusive, that's not exclusive. And here's why. It includes, that invitation is to every single type of person. The salvation that Jesus offers is not limited to a certain race, a certain gender, a certain socioeconomic class. It extends to all different types of people. So Jesus is Lord in how he arranges salvation. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So the first implication is salvation. The second implication, there's definitely, definitely a worship implication. So let me read, this is just some of my favorite passages here. So Philippians 2 verse 5 says, Has this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him, And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every single human being will bow their knee in worship to Jesus Christ at some point. You will either bow your knee to Jesus Christ now, willingly, or you will actually see Jesus Christ when he comes back and reveals himself for who he is And he will overwhelm every single person with his glory and power to such a degree that the only fitting response would be to bow one's knee in submission and in worship. So man, the hope is that Jesus' lordship would produce inside of you, deep inside of you, real, genuine, authentic worship for who he is. The goal of the Christian life has worship with it. Like there's, there's a level that when we see Jesus as Lord that it should produce worship inside of us so there's a salvation implication and a worship implication there's also a sanctification implication as a christian you're not the goal of the christian life is not primarily to just live a better life the goal of the christian life is not primarily to just do better to just be a good moral person the goal of the christian life is to actually become like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let me read another passage in 2 Corinthians. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And then down in verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So this passage teaches that the primary essence of sanctification, our growth from the time we're a Christian to the time we go home in heaven, is not simply trying to do better things and trying to avoid bad things, but it's worshiping Jesus, looking up at Jesus and worshiping Jesus So that as worship for Jesus goes up, there is transformation that happens into the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to the next. 
So there's a sanctification implication. You're primarily, your goal as a Christian is to primarily become like the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not simply to be a better person. And so in addition to that with sanctification, there, there's a confessing, repenting implication. I'll just say it like this. If you don't see Jesus as Lord, your desire and urgency to confess and repent of sin goes drastically downward. But where there is a real sense of Jesus Christ's lordship, the desire to put sin to death, confess sin and repent of sin and grow in holiness goes exponentially up. And it has to do with understanding Jesus' lordship. There's a direct relationship between our ability and urgency to put off sin, repent of sin, confess sin, and in how we view Jesus Christ. If you view Jesus as really small, the desire and urgency to put sin to death isn't going to be very much. But where there's a real sense of Jesus Christ's lordship in your life, when Jesus says, I want to talk about this in your life, there's a humility that goes, okay, let's talk about that. When Jesus says, I want to address this in your life, there's a humility that says, okay, let's address that. You're Lord. For a lot of us, the reason why we don't address issues in our life, because when God presses on us, issues in our life reveal sin in our life, and you know we're apathetic, and we let it sit, and we let it simmer, it's, it's a failure to recognize the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So we have a salvation implication, a worship implication, sanctification implication, and a surrender implication. And so let's read, this is, um, this is the morning where I get to read all of my favorite passages. That's what we're doing this morning. So Isaiah 6, um, I'll just summarize a lot of this, but basically Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, he walks into the throne room of God. Just an unbelievable passage. He gets a little snapshot into God sitting on his throne and all of the things that are happening. He sees angelic beasts worshiping him. He sees the train of his robe filling the temple. And he is overwhelmed with this picture of God as Lord, King of Kings. He's the first phrase says, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. And then as he gets through the passage, this is what, this is what God said. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Isaiah, here am I, send me. You see, when we understand Jesus' lordship and see God's lordship, there's a willingness to say to God, do whatever you want in my life. Whatever you want in my life, that's what I want. So if you call me here, I'm willing to go there. If you call me here, I'm willing to go there. And God, you know, Isaiah gets done seeing this unbelievable picture of God. And God, without giving Isaiah any details, says, I need somebody to go do something. Basically what God says, and Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. See, a lot of us, our our level of obedience to God and our our ability to surrender to God is directly related to our view of God's lordship. No one wants to follow a king that's not that powerful, right? I mean, no one gets, I mean, no one wants to say, I surrender to you to somebody who's not that great. But Isaiah sees an unbelievable picture of God's greatness seated on the throne, high and lifted up. Then God says, I've got work to do. Who wants to go for me? And Isaiah says, I'm in for that. I'm in for that. And then lastly, there is a peace implication in Jesus' lordship. And so let me read Philippians chapter 4. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. 
let your, I always, I always have so much, I read this in youth a few weeks ago and I can't ever say this word, let your reasonableness be na- made known to everyone. <laughs> a little bit ago I was like, your reasonableness, your reasonableness, and I was like, I'm just not going to say it. So, let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. That's what they teach you in seminary, how to read. That's what we're trying to do. So, then it says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It says that the Lord is at hand. Let me t- let's talk about that for a second. That's not talking about God's general presence. You know, if you grew up in church, you probably heard the three O's, that God is omnipresent, omnipotent, and um, um, the other one. The omnipresent one, though, omnipotent, omnipresence. Y'all help me out here. What is it? Omniscience. Thank you. Yeah, omniscience. Thank you. Need to remember to write those down in my notes next time. So there's this, there's this view, there's this teaching of God's omnipresence that teaches that God is generally everywhere. He's geographically everywhere in proximity. There's nowhere in earth or the universe that God is not present. That's not the kind of presence that God is, that Paul is talking about. When he says the Lord is at hand, He's talking about relational presence, his covenant presence with his people, the fact that he knows you. You know that God knows you in a way that nobody else knows you. God knows you personally and relationally. It's what theologians call his covenant presence. Like right now, um, I'm standing right here and my wife is at home right now, and there are people that are closer to Trisha, she's getting ready right now, probably chasing Owen around, I don't know. There are people that are closer to Trisha in proximity from me to her. She's at the house right now. But there's nobody who's nearer to Trisha relationally than I am. I know Trisha, she's my wife, so I know her in a way that's more personal and more relational than anybody between her and I right now. So it's not, God's nearness is not necessarily, it's not limited to just an issue of proximity and geography. When the Lord is at hand in this passage, he's talking about the fact that he knows you. He is present with you. His relational presence is with you. And when you understand and see that the Lord is present in your life, that the Lord is at hand, there is a direct relationship between anxiety being cast out of your life and the peace of God coming into your life. The Lord is at hand. It's a great truth, great, great truth. That has to do with God's lordship. If God is with you but isn't Lord, we have reason to be worried. We have reason to be anxious. There's cause for anxiety. But when the Lord, watch it, when the Lord is with you, when he's relationally near to you, when the King of kings and Lord of lords who sits on a, th- a throne high above everything for which all things are placed under his feet, when that Lord is relationally with you via his Holy Spirit, then anxiety can leave us and the peace of God can come inside of us. And we can actually live on planet earth with peace So right now, peace is not, in the Bible, you can have peace and it has nothing to do with your circumstances. Right now, your life might be out of control to you. It might be out of your control. But your life is never out of God's control. He's never out of the Lord's control because he's Lord. 
So the more we see God as Lord, the more we see Jesus Christ as Lord, the more our hearts can be free of anxiety and be filled up with the peace of God. So those are some implications of Jesus' lordship to at least get you started down a path. And from that, I mean, we could go down and talk marriage, we could talk money, we could talk, we could talk kids, we could talk a lot of things. But those are just, just a framework of Jesus' lordship that can hopefully kind of get the conversation started, get things rolling around in your brain. But my friends, Jesus came in his last teaching, he started off his last teaching and said to all of the people, here's what I want everybody to know, I am Lord period. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.